as we continue our study in 1 Timothy. Turn to chapter 3, if you would please. We're going to read this uh, rather lengthy portion of Scripture. I usually don't go through this much, but it all seems to, uh, to go together, and so that's what we're going to consider today as we continue, and I trust it'll be an encouragement to you as we talk about the qualifications for elders and deacons. And there's a word here for all of us. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy, faithful is the word. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, I thank you for this this marvelous passage of Scripture that is before us. I thank you for all of your Word. Lord, our goal as followers of Christ is not only to be filled with your Holy Spirit, but be filled with your Word, to let your Word dwell richly in us. And so that which we just finished singing, I pray, would be a reality for each of us that we would Allow your word to dwell in our hearts and bring forth fruit. I pray this for the children who are listening today. I pray this for our students. I pray this for newlyweds. I pray this for those who have been married a longer period of time or in the throes of raising families. I pray this for grandparents. I pray for this for those who have never been married, never had children, or those who are single once more. Father, we need you. We need your word. And I pray that you would allow an anointing to to be upon me as I share. Just simply share. As Jim said, nothing flashy, 
just your word empowered by your spirit. And I pray that it would bring forth in this fellowship and in the individuals who are a part of our fellowship much fruit. I pray this in the name of our risen Savior and coming King, even Jesus. Amen. Like a new husband who loves his bride, Jesus loves his church. But unlike a brand new husband who probably doesn't know at this point in their relationship, his relationship with his wife, about what to do and how to do it, even though he's received much counsel probably from the minister who's married them, Jesus, listen, Jesus knows his bride and he knows exactly what we need. Jesus said it like this to his disciples, and I just quoted the whole verse here. I don't always do that, but, but we need to see this. Jesus was having a conversation about his deity with his disciples, and Peter makes this incredible revelation, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and so Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, that I will build on this rock my church, whether it was on Peter, there's much debate about that, or the confession that Peter made, which is more likely, he said, this is what Jesus said, and it's a promise, I will build my church. Now, remember, as we talk about this, we're always talking about the church universal, all ages, all times, and across the globe at this moment, but we're also talking about Heritage Baptist Church, our local church, those people that have assembled together as a part of this fellowship. So remember that there is a promise from Jesus himself, I'll build my church, and guess what? Although we are involved in spiritual warfare, guess what? The gates of hell will not prevail against my church as I build it. Now, we go back to Timothy right after this extensive passage that I just read to you. We are reminded by Paul, I'm writing these things to you. Maybe he thought after this long passage it had all of these qualifications, all of these detailed instructions about elders and deacons and their wives. They needed to stop and remind the church at Ephesus what this was all about. He said, look, guys, and I could say this to you, Heritage, look, God through Paul is saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And so we know that Jesus is going to build his church, right? We know that he's given us the tools by which to build his church, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. You never have one without the other. They both work in conjunction. But in, now get this, in the absence of Jesus, he has left not only his Word and his Spirit, but he has left God-appointed men to take the Word empowered by the Spirit and to be used by him 
to grow the church of Jesus Christ, to instruct the church of Jesus Christ, to strengthen and to protect the church of Jesus Christ. Now, while these two roles are different, in one sense, the qualities that Paul gives are, I'll put it this way, they are certain minimum qualifications. I tried to emphasize when I read, I I hope you you heard it, that it starts out, the overseer, look at this in verse 2, must be, and then he lists these things, okay? And then he comes to the deacons in verse 8, likewise, just like I instructed you about the leaders, the elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers, I'm using that word and we'll see why it's interchangeable in just a moment, but he says this again, likewise must be, and then he adds some more qualifications, which are, which are interestingly similar to those of a lead elder. And then he mentions, and I, I believe we're not going to get into this, if you want to know about women leading in the church, you'll have to look back at the last several sermons where I spent some time explaining to you what the Bible says about that. So the ESV rightly translates this, listen, not as a separate office. Paul only in this passage speaks of two offices, the overseer and the deacon, and here he says their wives. That's a good translation, but look at this. Likewise, the women who are supporting their men, remember, God created the head and the helper, so they are supporting their husbands in leadership and servanthood, they likewise must be. And then he gives some qualifications for the wives of these men called to lead the church. That's all I'm going to say about that. Again, you Go back and listen, and I've spelled it out in several sermons, starting with chapter 2, verse 8, on through chapter 2, verse 15. But it's very important that we get this. This is right out of Scripture, and uh, so I wanted to point that out to you today. Let me also point this out. What Paul says here and what I'm teaching to you is absolutely consistent with everything that the apostles spelled out for the New Testament church. Let me run you through about three passages of Scripture. We'll park on that last one, make a few comments, and then go on. But I want to show you that whenever something is taught like this, and a leader, a teacher, a pastor says, this is what this means It's always a good thing to see if it's backed up with other portions of Scripture, okay? And so we go back, Acts chapter 14. Did the Apostle Paul do this, the first missionary journey right out of the chute? I'm not even going back to the church at Jerusalem. It's obvious that there were apostles and elders serving in the church of Jerusalem. Some might say that was a carryover of the synagogue or the Old Testament system But look what the Apostle Paul did. Now, remember, he was called by God, okay? So here's what he did right out of the chute, first missionary journey, 
every church that he established in every location, he went through, established the churches, and then he went back through. He told them a couple of things. We'll come back to one of those things in a minute. But here's one of the things that he did. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed later on. Paul is writing to one of the churches that he had established. Let's see if this pattern holds true. It does, and it also includes the other office that he mentions here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Consistency. Paul and Timothy, that young man to whom he wrote in 1 Timothy, the church at Ephesus, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints... In Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, we could, we could insert the words, Heritage Baptist Church, with the overseers and the deacons. Some of you may, if you've never heard this teaching before, you may say, no, wait, 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 overseers, and you're kind of using the word elder, pastor, in that This is not the only one, but this is probably the clearest example of the teaching about overseers, elders, shepherds, pastors, that you can get in a condensed form. All three titles of the same office are used in this passage that Peter still later is writing. So I exhort the elders among you. And then he calls himself, this is beautiful, he was an apostle, but he called himself a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as witness to the partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Second, the second nuance of this office, the second title, shepherd, pastor, the flock of God that is among you, third, that he uses here in 1 Timothy, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. That's key, and we're going to come back to this in just a minute. As God would have you for the will of God and not for sordid gain, but eagerly. So here toward, let's go back. I'm going to leave this on the screen so that you can see that. I've italicized those words, maybe so you can write those down. And and you can see, if you want to be instructed, I I hope you do in this. But let me share with you that this, this runs the sweep of the whole New Testament. It is consistent from the Apostle Paul, not only the Apostle Paul, but as we've seen, from the Apostle Peter. And there is, as I read this, I hope you saw something. Paul gives way more consideration to the character qualities of the men who are charged with leading the church and serving the church than he does to the method of how they might be appointed or, for that matter, any other aspect of eldership. Why? Because nothing, please hear this, nothing is more helpful or damaging to the church of Jesus Christ, the health of the church of Jesus Christ, than good leaders 
or unfortunately bad leaders. Who's the head of the church? Well, you know that because you've been around, you've heard me say that. There are a lot of churches where if you ask that question, who would they say? Pastor, you are. You're the boss of the church. And if you've gone through our Membership Matters class or if you've been around a while, you know that we kind of make a big deal. This is the way we're structured. This is not my personal preference. This is what our bylaws and constitutions say because we believe they are based on what the Scripture says. My title is indicative of how we see this whole thing. I am not the senior pastor or senior pastor. I'm a teaching pastor. That little nuance is key. I am not the boss of the church. Who is the boss of the church? Jesus Christ is the head of the church, His body, not just universally, but also locally. And He Himself is its Savior. I'm bouncing back to what 1 Peter says a little bit later on, when the chief shepherd. I love that designation. So think of it like this. There is one, Jesus, who is the head. He is the chief shepherd of this flock. And those guys called elders and pastors in our church are the under-shepherds. Here is the way we say it at our church, and some of you could quote this. Maybe, or I hope at least it would sound familiar to you. Here's the way we look at our, our setup as a church. It's very simple, but deeply profound, I believe. We are Christ-ruled, elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally affirmed. And that's why when the writer to the Hebrews said this, obey your leaders and submit to them, not because they're the bosses, but guess why? It's because they know, we know, that we are going to give an account. As under-shepherds, we will give an account to the chief shepherd. Let them do this then. In your submission, loving submission to us, as the leaders of the church, it will allow us to do what we do with joy. I like this, and not with groaning. I know a lot of churches where the leaders groan. That would be no advantage to you. But the desire to leave is, lead is not enough. Let's dive into the passage itself. You see, I've got three different points. We're going to run through these. We're going to expand the application of this in case you're getting lost in the details here. I'm looking around. I still see your eyeballs, okay? By the way, I was thinking, Jim, as you were talking about the nursery rotation, the thought just instantly hit me when you said, and, and he would be good, he's good at anything, but he, as he serves in that nursery rotation, he said, he's good at rocking the babies. I was thinking, well, what would I do? Oh, I know what I would do. I'd just start preaching to the babies. <laughs> Put them right to sleep, just like you. Yeah. <laughs> I know it doesn't put you to sleep. Number one. Verse 1, the church must appoint men 
who are spiritually motivated and spiritually minded. Spiritually motivated and spiritually minded. It says if anyone, by the way, this is all, this is all masculine, okay? If anyone, any of you men aspire, that, that word means a reaching out toward, not a grabbing, but a reaching toward. If any of you in your heart reach toward being a leader, here's what Paul says, it's a good thing. But that is not the noble task, the reaching out. What is the noble task is the office of being an overseer. The elder, the pastor, the overseer, he says that is a noble task. Now let me just say this, and it's obvious from this passage, and it should be obvious from everything else that Paul and that Jesus taught. This is not a reaching out for a man-centered desire for recognition. Somebody who just wants the title or the position. Being an overseer, being a, a, being a leader, being a pastor is not just a CEO. It's certainly not a celebrity. And it's not just serving on a board of directors. It is a, listen, it is a God-given bent to love and to lead God's people that I, it's hard to explain, but it's just there. It's a bend. In, any of the guys, by the way, any of the guys in our church that are elders or deacons, it's almost like they're reluctant in a way. In a way, they want to, but there's this reluctance. I, and a lot of them will say this, and a lot of you who are not elders and deacons, you will say this too, and I, I so appreciate this. I don't have to have a title to serve. And that's what so many of you say, and that's what our, our leaders say. It is that God-given bent. Now, let me show you from what Paul, th this is in Acts chapter 20. So, this is after the first missionary journey. He is going back, uh, and, and so he calls for the elders at the church of Ephesus. They come and meet him, and he says something very significant. We might pass over this, but it's so significant, so significant on several levels. Number one, Pay attention to yourselves. Keep a close watch, elders, deacons, leaders. Keep a close. By the way, we're, we're going to see how this applies across the board. So all of you, students, children, keep a close watch on yourselves. But elders also, they have a bent. And so he reminds them of this bent and to all the flock in which... Not you have chosen, but in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You need to keep a close, close watch. That's why these qualifications are here on yourself and to the flock to care, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In every man that serves as a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer, an elder, whatever you want to call them, listen, listen. There ought to be a blood earnestness to seeking to fulfill that role as a leader of the church. Humbly, a blood 
earnestness, knowing that this flock, as I look out at you and I see blood-bought believers who need to be fed the Word of God and guided along the way and protected from the evil one and all of the influences, and even when it's necessary, brought into discipline. Now, we're, we're going to get to the qualifications here in just a minute. But Paul says something in 1 Timothy I think that is very, very important. This whole thing of keeping watch and making sure that, that we are a church, that we are keeping watch and as our elders keep watch. Because Paul says something, we read it a few moments ago, this was for the deacons, but it applies again to all of the leaders let them be tested. Let them be tested. Okay? This is important. When SEAL Team 6 was putting together a team, looking at themselves as a team to go in and to exterminate Osama bin Laden, my guess is that they had a list. They had a list of qualifications. Right here we have 14 among the elders, okay? Let's just say that SEAL Team 6 had 14 qualifications. This is what you must have to be on SEAL Team 6 so we can go and get Osama bin Laden. There is no way that whoever was the leader of that, there is no way that he would have ever said, well, let's go ahead and let this guy in. He, you know, he's got 13 out of the 14 qualifications, but he is such a nice guy, and we just like him, and so let's let him on. Let's say that his qualification was, as a Navy SEAL, he couldn't swim. Ah, that's okay, you know, we'll give him floaties. You know, it, it's, it's all right. 13 out of 14 ain't bad. They, they would never have gotten Osama bin Laden if they had worked like that. Now, how much more important when we are dealing, please church, this is not a club, how much more important when we are dealing with eternal souls is it that we as a church demand the, the must be that our leaders meet 14 out of the 14 qualifications. Now, I say that there are three that are abilities, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But what I'm trying to say is that there are minimum requirements that must be met. Oh, by the way, and to just kind of carry over doing a little bit of reading on SEAL Team 6, it doesn't say it right here in this way, but it does say it in the verse right before the other verse we read out of Acts chapter 14. The guys on SEAL Team 6 had it in their mind that they weren't coming home. It didn't matter. 
They had a mission. And the vital thing was the mission. It didn't matter if they came home or not. And that's where we get some off-the-wall teaching that, that goes against the grain of a lot of teaching, evangelical teaching that's out there today. That Paul, when he's going back and appointing elders in the churches that he has just founded, how does he strengthen the souls of those? How does he encourage the brand new believers in the faith that they had believed by saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God? And in case you might think that that only speaks to the elders, it speaks to everyone. 2 Timothy, the next letter after 1 Timothy, indeed all, all who desire. How many of you, no hands please, but how many of you, students, you're included, children, where's some children? Okay, I see. Well, we see the Williams over there, children, Silas, I see you. How many of you desire to live godly lives? All of you. You struggle with it, but you desire to live godly lives. Well, let me let you in on a secret if you desire to live a godly life, not just a moral life, but a godly life in, life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. It is the way of Christ. So the church must appoint. That's the first point. We're going to the second point. First point is we must appoint men who are spiritually motivated and spiritually minded. Let's move on. When you look at the list, I read it just a moment ago, verses 2 through 7, and then we, deacons likewise, verse 8, and, and, and on through the wives. When you look at the list, what do you see? And this is, this is so vital. It's huge. Are these unusual qualities for a Christian? Are they? Look, look at it. Are they? Let's take one. Not violent, but gentle. Is that only for elders? Look at the quote by D.A. Carson. I know you've got your worship guide open. Look right across the page from where you've already run out of room from taking copious notes. And look at the quote by D.A. Carson. We're also going to do the quote by Gene Getz founding pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Dallas. D.A. Carson said, and I love this the most, listen, students and children, this is where I, I'm, I'm hopping in and we're, we're, we're doing this in love. We're, we're saying this includes all of us. The most extraordinary thing about the biblical prerequisites for elders is that they are not all that extraordinary. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's what a Christian ought to be from the earliest when a four-year-old trusts Christ, follows the Lord in baptism. That's, that's a sign. That's a symbol that the, the, the steps are taken toward sanctification from a four-year-old to a 90-year-old. This is what we are talking about. And so every one of us ought to want to attain to these qualities as they are given. Children, students, married people, single people, young people, old people, all of this grows out of. Now, here's another 
Here's another picture that, that Paul paints in another place. We are saved by grace through faith. Everybody knows the first part of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace, go ahead and say it with me, whatever translation you memorized it out of. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And we stop there. That's the justification. But always, students, are you listening? Good. I don't know that I remember one sermon from when I was 16. I hope you'll remember this sermon. About elders? Yes. Because our justification leads, if we're truly in Christ, to sanctification. There's a walk that grows out of the foundation. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I hope there is no Christ follower in this room today who would look at this list of qualifications and say, Pastor, that's for you, but not for me. Or that may not be for you, but it is for me. Because this, by definition, is for all of us. Let me ask you a question. Parents, Parents, do you want your son or your daughter to grow up manifesting these qualities? Do you? Now, again, there, there, there's at least one and probably a couple of abilities that are here apt to teach, but all of the rest of those character qualities, parents, do you want your kids to grow up manifesting those qualities? You bet you do. Grandparents, do you want your grandchildren to grow up manifesting those qualities above everything else? Whether or not they're a success in life or et cetera, et cetera, you want them to manifest the qualities of a follower of Christ. Now, let me say this. The reason I put very specifically the word attaining to not perfection. You will, drive, you will drive your kids to frustration or your grandkids or any other relationship that you have if you expect perfection. There's a growth process. We talked about this in ABF today. I've been married almost 50 years. And I said, I'm still on the journey. I will be until the day one of us dies or both of us dies because we haven't reached perfection. But the question is, are you attaining to those qualities for your sta station in life as an 8-year-old, as an 18-year-old, as a 38-year-old, as an 88-year-old? And that really is the key. So what do you do? You know, the elder selection is really elder recognition. What do you do? You look around and you identify men who are attaining to these qualities over time. Over time. And that's how elders and deacons are selected in the church. Let's look at these qualities, okay? Are you ready? We get to our list. Here we go. And by the way, I'm going to combine these for just ease of moving through them, add to maybe a couple of others outside of this passage of Scripture, 
But I want to talk about these things. Now, the first one and the last one are bookends, above reproach and well thought of by those outside the church. Okay? Those are bookends. And I'll ask it like this. Of, of every individual in here, remember, we're looking for guys who have, who have done this for a while. But I'm going to ask it of every individual in here. Do you aspire to be in your walk with the Lord above reproach? doesn't mean that people won't accuse you. It just means it won't stick. And then outside the church, do you aspire to be well thought of by those outside of the church? Now, watch it. Be careful with that one, but it is vitally important. And that's why you have to, sometimes you have to ask the spouse and maybe the kids, because it's not just the pastor in his public persona in the pulpit or, or a person on TV. You have to find out what's going on behind the scenes. And here's why it's so important. We go all the way back to the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. So we need a local church with elders and with deacons, with people who are aspiring not for perfection, but to be walking in a manner that is above reproach and also well thought of by those outside of the church. I, some of you are too young to remember this. It's just a little illustration of this. Anybody remember, you're old enough to remember the Christian yellow pages? Anybody? Well, guys used to come around and, and they would sell advertising in their Christian yellow pages. And so if you were a Christian, you could put your business in there and you could put a big fish sign with it or a cross with glowing, radiating off of it. I was told more than once, now this isn't a blanket condemnation if you happen to have been in the Christian yellow pages. It's okay to put a fish or a cross by your business sign, Okay. But be careful because I was told by more than one person, if I see somebody's name in the Christian yellow pages, I ain't using them because they'd had so much of a bad experience with guys wanting to get by with little work and demand a lot of pay. Well thought of by people outside the church. It doesn't mean that you're going to go along with everything people outside the church say, but it does mean that you, to the best of your ability, will seek to have a good reputation. There was a young man that Paul chose to go with him. He later became the elder to whom he's writing here in Ephesus. And look at this, guys, students, and, and adults too. You get in on this. We all do. But this guy probably, Timothy, was at this point probably about 16 to 21. So look at, look at the, the qualification. Paul came to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. And Luke points this out. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, probably not a Christian, a pagan. But he was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. He had that reputation. If you desire not the office, but the quality. And that's what I'm praying for each one of you. Where does it start? By the way, where does it start? 
Parents, come on. Where does it start? In the home. In the home. Let's look at the next one. The husband of one wife. You all know what this means, the, a one-woman kind of man. It doesn't mean necessarily that you've been married for a long time, but it does mean that in that marriage that's been tested over a period of time, that there is a faithfulness in heart, in mind, in outward actions that is visible when you're around that person. And, and the reason I'm, I'm continuing looking over at the students because I had them in mind while I was writing this sermon. This does not just apply to those of you who are married men and women. It applies before you're married. When do you develop a heart for purity in your relationship with the opposite sex? Again, where does it start? In the home. And you want a church that will undergird that. Do you aspire, if not to hold an office, do you aspire to relational purity? Do you aspire to hold to what the Bible teaches, the sanctity of marriage? One man, one woman for a lifetime. We, we talked about this. I, I, sometimes it's just so natural to talk about, give a plug for adult Bible fellowship because in our adult Bible fellowship, we talked about this very thing about faithfulness. And I, I was thinking this week, going back, this is a number of years, a number of years when I, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, was meeting with my son. He was in high school and several of his buddies and we were going through the, the Bible. We were talking about all of these kinds of things. So he was about the age of some of you guys, gals sitting over here. And they were learning and growing. They weren't perfect, but they were young people who were learning and growing. And one day I heard one of them, might have been my son, Jason, might have, I, don't, I can't remember which one it was, but he said something, he was with another one of the guys, and he said this, are you jobing it? And I, I, I heard that and I said, what? Are you jobing it? And I said, what in the world is that? Are you jobing it? What does that mean? They did this on their own. I didn't coach them in this. They found Job 31.1. On their own, and they made not only a covenant with God, but a covenant, an accountability covenant with each other to hold each other accountable for their eyes. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Job 31.1 says, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not gaze on a virgin, on a young woman. And you could fill in the blank inappropriately. So, young guys, you know what I'm going to ask you. Are you jobing it? Do you aspire for personal purity in your relationships? Oh, maybe I ought to ask guys that are a little bit older. I'm looking around to see if there's any guy that's doing this. Okay. I'm not. Are you jobing? In other words, do you aspire? This is one of the qualities. Is it just for elders, women, wives, 
Do you desire a husband who is a one-woman kind of man? Mm. Yes. Let's move on. Sober-minded. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a lot of these things together. Here's God's plan. Sober-minded, dignified, sensible, self-controlled, not self-willed, double-tongued or double-tongued. Ah. Those of you who know me know that I like to crack a joke as much as anybody. I teach third and fourth grade Awana, and sometimes we start out with dumb jokes. Like, okay, third and fourth graders, help me out. What is a rabbit's favorite place to eat breakfast? Do you adults know? IHOP, of course. Okay, I like a joke, a corny joke, a dad joke as much as anybody. It's not wrong to have a sense of humor, I hope, but it is wrong to have a demeanor of just being silly. If you're going to be a leader, if you're just going to, to follow Christ, I'm not talking about being stuffy, but I'm talking about being serious about eternal realities, being stable, being composed, not given to excess, well-balanced, calm, and steady. And again, I go back to an example of some teenagers, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken from their home. They were told they must submit to the culture. These were young men who already were on the road. Where did they learn that? Come on. In the home, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And then at the end of the time, we find that these young men were 10 times more effective than all of the wise men of the courts of Babylon. That's what we want for our men. That's what we want for our young men and for our older men. In other words, I think what I'm saying is, what do you want in the pulpit? What do you want in the class, Sunday school class? Do you want a clown or a prophet? Okay, respectable. Let's run through these. Good reputation. A lover of good can be looked up to, can be counted on. Not a drunkard. And I'll add this, not addicted to substances, particularly the most destructive kinds. What's taught here is moderation. And then there's something I think that is related to not, drunk, not being a drunkard. It's the next thing, not quarrelsome. Wow, this is so big. Not quarrelsome, not violent, not quick-tempered, not pugnacious. I love that. Not a striker, not ready to fight at the drop of a hat but gentle and hospitable. Watch out, men and women. It's not fun to be around somebody who's just trigger happy, who's got a chip on their shoulder, who's ready to fight at the drop of a hat, to argue. All, I, listen, in every church, I've, I've had these kinds of people and they... You, know, you love them, and they wear on you, and all the rest of that, but they don't come asking a question. They come pointing a finger. 
and, and that is just not the kind of person you want in leadership, do you? One who is like that. But rather, and I put down this, not a pointed finger but open arms. And that's the way Jesus was. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Not a lover of money, not greedy for dishonest gain, not driven by money for ministry. That's mercenary. Leaders don't lead because it's a job and it's a paycheck and all the rest of that. And not even for the preservation of your own life, not a hireling. And one who will throw away ministry for personal gain like Judas or like Ananias and Sapphira or like Demas were willing to do. Must manage his own household well. Children who believe. Now this is an ability. And as long as that man's children are at home, when they've left home, there is precious little we can do sometimes for an erring child other than pray. And it doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean perfection. We talked about that a minute ago. But it means leading and providing and disciplining. Now, it says here, how will he lead the church of God if he doesn't know how to lead his own family? Do you know one of the main areas that this is speaking to? Church discipline. Typically, guys, leaders in churches don't do church discipline because they know they can't. They can't throw a stone because they live in a glass house, so to speak. But where that quality is held, discipline is necessary, whether in a home or sometimes in a church, as long as it's done biblically and appropriately. And then the the last one, we'll get to the ability. The last quality is not a new convert. Now, you can't help it if you're a new convert. It's okay to be relatively young in Christ, a novice. But here's what you need to know. If you, let's use an example of skiing, you know, snow skiing. You don't take a first-time skier and take him up to the top of the mountain and put him on a black diamond slope. You start out, you train and you teach, put him on the green. Well, first you start out on the bunny slope. Hey, it's not wrong to be on the bunny slope spiritually. You just don't want to stay there. You want to get to the green and then the blue. Work your way up. So not a new convert. Boy, this is specific. Why? Because you're going to be targeted by the devil. New converts need to be tempered through trial and time and experience in the Christian life in times of persecution. And there are those who say it's coming to the, to the American church. It's already around the world. But in times of persecution, who are the first ones the people are going to come after? They'll come after the leaders and the families of the leaders. And that's why it says, let them first be tested. Another illustration. I asked Jim about this a minute ago. What's the best wood to use for an axe handle? Now, I read about this, Jim. 
online. I turned to Jim because he is our, he's got, he makes knives and he builds things, and so I figured I could get a word. Well, the one that I found first on the list was hickory. Use hickory. What, did you, what else did you say? Birch. You use hardwoods. You don't use like pine. It's soft. It'll break easily. You use hardwoods. But here, here is the thing to it. Even if you use the best wood available, if you put it onto an axe head, if it's still green, what's going to happen even if it's the best wood? It's going to splinter. It's going to break. And here's the biggest thing. It'll shrink. And the axe head flies off. So you can have the best wood, but it needs to be tempered so that it will be able to be strong enough to hit the blows and flexible enough when it has impact. Remember the story of Rehoboam? Some of you that have read the the history of Israel, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, He was given advice by his older counselors. Here's what you need to do if you're going to have success. And he didn't. He followed the younger counselors. Guess what happened? He was a green axe handle put into leadership too soon. And he blew it and listened to the younger counselors. And he split the kingdom in two. It never recovered except through Christ. I'll use this verse again. When the righteous increases, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people grumble. Last thing. All right. Look at this last thing. Quickly, I've gone over time. Forgive me, but I'm going to finish. Okay. Just pretend you're watching the last two minutes of the Arkansas versus Kansas game. You're not going to get up and do anything. Okay. Okay. Enough said about that. The church must appoint men who can teach and preach the Word. The ability to hold to the orthodox doctrines of the faith and to be able and have the desire to teach it. A man who's called to be in this position will hunger to teach not to hear the sound of his own voice. I hate to listen to recordings of myself. No desire there, but desire to study the Word, to dig into the Word, to, to, to pull out the meaning, to give to the people of God so that the people of God will grow into maturity from the youngest to the oldest. And that's the bent of a man of God that we're talking about, but shouldn't that be the bent of every person in here? I read this and I thought, this this is an apt illustration. It's not, don't pick a guy like this, not he's able to teach if you hold a gun to his head, but rather he won't stop teaching even if you put a gun to his head. His favorite verse is this, preach the Word. Preach the Word. There's nothing else to preach. Preach the word. Be ready. Be instant, in season, out of season. Rebuke, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience in teaching. And let the word 
and the Spirit do its work. You know, I look out here and I see a, a, a group of people that I've, over the last 18 years, grown to, to know and to love. And many of you are, you've been around. I see some old timers and you've been around for a long time. And there are those of you who are fairly new in the church, but the thing that I desire more than all else is that you be a man or a woman or a child or a student who is not only saved, but continuing on that path, aspiring. Do you aspire? It's a question I've been asking all along. And again, for parents, where does it start? Not here in the pulpit. I support what you're doing. Where does it start? In the home. In the home. You've known from childhood, he said to young Timothy, the things that make you wise unto salvation. J. Gresham Machen was a stalwart of the faith in another day when liberalism was coming in. Brilliant, wrote books, and he just was a brilliant defender of the faith. But he himself said, the most important educational institution is not the pulpit or the school, important as these institutions are. It is the Christian family. Father, I thank you for your word. And this morning we have sought to exposit your word the power of the Holy Spirit, and let your Spirit work in people. God, first of all, as I said just a moment ago, I pray for salvation to come to those who don't know Jesus. These are not just moral characteristics that we hang on an unsaved life. These are qualities that grow out of the fact that a person has repented of his or her sin has trusted in the finished work of Christ on the cross, has accepted that for himself or herself, believed in Jesus and started on the road to sanctification. So I pray first of all for salvation and that if any here today have taken that step, please, Lord, let them seek one of us out so we can talk with them. But by far and away, Lord, this is a message not only for the church but individuals that we aspire toward all of these characteristics and then appoint faithful men, not just men of faith, but faithful men who are manifesting these qualities, these characteristics over time. So I thank you and I praise you for what you will do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.